Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The election manifestos of London's main mayoral candidates compared. A survey shows no slowdown in skyscraper approvals despite the pandemic. And why drivers so often seem grumpy? Could it be down to how cars taint perceptions of the environment around us? My name's Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. My special guest this week is Dave Hill. Dave is founder and editor of On London. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Our first item has been widely covered across London's local and built environment media, particularly On London, which has produced its own definitive guide. It is, of course, the London mayoral election, which will be held on the 6th of May, just two weeks from now. This year, we see a record number of 20 candidates appearing on the ballot paper, including familiar faces such as Sean Berry of the Green Party, Labour's Sadiq Khan and the Conservative Sean Bailey. Alongside them is also an eclectic mix of independent and semi-independent candidates, such as Valerie, Valerie Brown of Burning Pink, Brian Rose, an ex-banker standing for the London Real Party, Mandu Reid, leader of the Women's Equality Party, and Count Binface, a self-proclaimed interplanetary space warrior. Despite the long list of candidates, recent polls show that the incumbent, Sadiq Khan, is in for a landslide victory, coming in at 20 points ahead of the Conservative Sean Bailey, who is currently occupying second place, tailed by Louisa Porritt of the Liberal Democrats and Sean Berry of the Greens. Polls have revealed that tackling crime is the biggest issue on the public agenda, closely followed by health. But we will be focusing on what the four main candidates' manifestos mean for our built environment. First up, we're going to look at transport. Sadiq Khan was transport minister under Gordon Brown, and in his time as mayor, he's brought in several memorable policies, including the night tube, the bus hop affair, as well as the ultra-low emissions zone. Dave, what does his latest manifesto propose with regards to transport in London, and how does this compare to some of the other main candidates' pledges? Well, I think the first thing to say on transport, uh, and this applies to all of the candidates, is that the future is very unknown, because I'm sh- as I'm sure you will be aware, there has been an ongoing battle between Sadiq Khan and Transport for London and the National Conservative Government about the funding of Transport for London. And this goes right back to when Transport for London's uh, income from fares completely collapsed when the first lockdown came into effect. TfL depends very, very heavily on revenue from fares. No fares, no money. 
So they had to ask the government to uh, bail them out with an emergency settlement. Now, because nobody knows how this is going to play out, it's very difficult for any candidate to make cred really credible promises uh, or set any really uh, credible plans for what they want to do in the area of transport. So Sadiq Khan's manifesto uh, harks back to things he's very proud of doing already. You mentioned a couple of those. He's brought in the uh, uh, ultra-low emission zone. Now, Boris Johnson was going to do that. It's actually Boris Johnson's invention, but Sadiq Khan brought it in a year early. And also, he intends to uh, enlarge it hugely out to the north and south circular roads, and that's supposed to happen in October. Literally on the day that the election was postponed, Sadiq Khan said, well, having frozen TfL fares for for getting on uh, four years uh okay i'm, I'm gonna have to slightly unfreeze them now we're gonna keep we're gonna keep freezing bus fares but other stuff is gonna have to go up by the uh, rate of inflation there's been this huge battle on free travel for under 18s and the 60 to 65 age group which Sadiq Khan says i'm gonna keep the government says well if you want to keep that you're gonna have to pay for it yourself so there are going to be increases in council tax and this has been a political battleground What's in Sadiq's manifesto? Not a tremendous amount because they can't be really. If if we look at the other if we look at the other candidates, um, so Sean Bailey's campaign has basically been saying it's all Sadiq Khan's fault that the TfL virus is a mess, uh, and he talks about uh, uh, cutting waste, uh, dealing with high salaries at TfL, pensions, this issue of nominee passes, whereby if you work for TfL. Uh, someone in your household can have uh, concessionary travel rates. He's against the ULES the, uh, expansion and says uh, that won't happen. If he, if he gets elected, he'll stop that. Um, and um, on funding future projects, he says he will set up a thing called a London Infrastructure Bank, which is based on the National Infrastructure Bank. And it's really a, a kind of body designed to attract private investments in public sector transport projects. Other, other items in uh, the Sean Bailey manifesto, he thinks that there's scope for a lot of corporate sponsorship of Transport for London services and stations. Um, so moving on to Sean Berry, big emphasis on environmentally friendly transport stuff. Lots of stuff about uh, more cycling stuff. Sh uh, Sean Berry and the Greens are very much against the Silvertown Tunnel going ahead. That's a big tunnel going under under the Thames. Sadiq Khan is committed to it, although he doesn't talk about it very much. Um, the Greens say that should, shouldn't uh, happen. I think perhaps one way to summarise their view on, on streets, on cycling and walking and so on, is to perhaps call it Street Space Plus. Street Space is the programme that uh, Sadiq Khan introduced at the start of the first lockdown, where you uh, had temporary cycle lanes, uh, low traffic neighbourhoods. I think it's fair to summarise the Greens as saying we would have all of that and more of it. And the other really interesting uh, policy proposal from Sean Berry is to introduce a flat fares structure. So basically doing away with zones. And the idea is that people in outer London wouldn't have to pay more to travel into the centre than, than people in uh, sort of inner London. It's very interesting when you ask people who know a lot about how TfL finances work, you say, is this a practical scheme? And one of them says, yes, 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 you could do it tomorrow. 
although it would cost a lot of money, and other people say, no, 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 it's completely impractical, couldn't possibly happen. And to move on to Louisa Porritt, the, the Lib Dem, uh, she, like Chambéry, and this is, this is an important policy that they both agree about, would like to see uh, the introduction of, quote, smart road pricing. And that basically means a much more sophisticated congestion charging system, which would extend much more widely. It's, so it's, it stops being, if you like, a flat tax that everybody has to pay the same amount. It's related to other things, the distance you travel and so on. Now, Sadiq Khan, interestingly, has absolutely ruled that out. And I think my guess is that that's because he knows that the Tories would be after him because of that, because they're very against road pricing. And historically, London Assembly Conservatives have been opposed to the congestion charge as it stands. Um, Louisa Porritt would also like to bring in what she calls a flexible four-day travel card. Um, she's also against the Silvertown Tunnel, and she's also big on more cycling. Fantastic. Well, um, I'm so glad we've got the big brains behind the definitive guide on the show this week, because um, this is really, really useful analysis for all our listeners. Um, now, affordable housing is another big, big issue uh, in this election. Um, Sean Bailey of the Conservatives, he's promised to make 100,000 new homes for £100,000 each. Uh, Louisa Porritt, standing for the Liberal Democrats, says she will convert office spaces into affordable homes. Well, that's an issue we've touched on in previous London, certainly. Um, Dave, how do you think the different housing policies uh, compare? And what do you think people need to know about each candidate when it comes to housing? Well, the key difference, uh, I suppose, between Sadiq Khan and Sean Bailey, who, as things stands, is closest rival, is it's, if you like, the classic difference between Labour and Conservative. That difference is manifest in the, the manifestos. So um, Sadiq Khan has received three large sums of money from the government from their affordable housing pot for his affordable housing programme. And his job is to allocate that to housing associations and councils. The most recent lump of money was £4 billion for a five-year period. And the emphasis, uh, I think the wording of the, of the prospectus, is that most of the homes started using this money will be for social rent. Sean Bailey's emphasis, being conservative, is very much on trying to use the affordable uh, 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 housing grant to get people on the housing ladder. What, what he's basically saying is that he would like to use that money differently, spread it more thinly, if you like, to more people, but use it on shared ownership primarily, as opposed to social rented products, to give people a chance to, to as it were, buy a bit of a house. And this figure, whatever it is, 100, what is it, 100,000 for 100,000 pounds? I mean, okay, Sadiq says, you've just picked that one out of the air. I think he's probably right about that, actually. But the principle is that he would spend the money on low-cost ownership products rather than social uh, rented products. Uh, Whether he would be able to do that once elected, given that the four billion pounds is already on the point of being dished out, is another question which I've yet to ask him. Louisa Porritt, uh, the premise of her manifesto is that there is going to be a lot of change in London as a result of the pandemic. The trends that were already happening, such as more homeworking, 
have been rapidly accelerated by the pandemic. So she talks about this in relation to high streets. How can we repurpose and reinvigorate high streets for new kinds of uses when more people are spending more time in their locality? Um, on housing specifically, um, her big thing is converting vacant office space into dwellings. So she, she says these should be converted into affordable, low-carbon, modern homes. So how you get from that wish to making it happen is quite complicated. She would need uh, government backing and perhaps the help of uh, City of City of London Corporation or Westminster Council to do that. And Westminster Conservative Borough, of course. She also wants to set up uh, a London housing company. The wording of Louisa Porritt's manifesto is that she would set up a city hall backed developer. Um, there's a certain amount of moving the deck chairs around about this, I think, because it would be um, bringing a lot of things that are already going on under the into one place. She's quite preoccupied with empty homes, bringing them into use, but it's mostly about raising revenue and making the very best use of public land. And I think that this would mean that some of the stuff that TfL is doing on its own, TfL has got a target of building 10,000 homes on land that it owns in partnership with in joint venture arrangements with developers of various kinds. And I'm, I'm guessing that the implication of, of this city hall back developer would be to sort of bring that in house and also to try and raise their own money and be, be less dependent on working with commercial developers or, and or housing associations. And uh, Sean Berry, well, her, her big thing on housing is private renters' rights. Now, the fact is that London mayors don't have a lot of power over the private rented sector. They can campaign for things. Sean um, believes that uh, uh, a lot more could be done uh, strengthen renters' rights and make, their, make sure that their voice is more loudly heard. She's very big on rent controls. Controversial subject. Sadiq Khan too is keen on rent controls and, and she's got a nice idea called uh, a people's, which she calls a People's Land Commission and this is very much in line with the green sort of bottom-up community activism type of pitch strand of a lot of, th runs through a lot of what they do whereby local communities would seek out bits of land, bits of unused land in their local neighbourhoods that they think could be used at all or put to better use and try and come up with plans. So that's quite a nice activist idea from her. We're now slowly emerging from the pandemic, but we're still in the midst of a climate crisis, which is only worsening through inaction. Um, Green Party candidate Sean Berry has proposed some big ideas to cut London's emissions in the past, such as converting City Airport into much-needed affordable housing. How have each of the main candidates addressed the environment in their manifestos? A lot of the uh, manifesto pledges from the candidates are to do with transport uh, and, and housing. Uh, the Greens, very keen to push energy saving in homes. Lots and lots of clean transport initiatives. A big no to airport expansion. Uh, Sadiq Khan, last time I looked and the last time the Greens looked, it appears still in favour of uh, a bigger Gatwick as opposed to a bigger Heathrow. Uh, Sadiq Khan did quite a big announcement a couple of weeks ago talking about a green recovery. Uh, he's basically saying that um, he's going to use such resources as he has in terms of... Um, supporting people in further education uh, 
to help them get ready for future-proof jobs, which includes kind of green economy types of occupation. There's a big stress throughout uh, Sadiq Khan's uh, manifesto on recovering from the pandemic, jobs, 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 and sustainable green jobs are, are one of the sorts that he's trying to promote. Um, Sean Bailey, um, Conservatives are kind of keener than they used to be to be seen to be green. Um, he's proposing a green compact, as he calls it, with housing developers to incorporate biodiversity measures into uh, planning policy. So I guess this would be a kind of London plan type thing. And, and he, um, he, he also wants to protect buildings and other sp and spaces of what he calls outstanding urban beauty to protect London's heritage. And I'm guessing that that's, that's um, green stuff and parks. It's interesting that none of the candidates, including uh, Louise Porritt, uh, none of them want to build on the green belt. Just to say a bit more about Louis, Louisa Porritt, I, I mean, there's quite a lot of crossover with the with the Greens here. Um, uh, a big emphasis on uh, green and sustainable transport, cycling, 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 and so on. Now, on the topic of air pollution, this week uh, a coroner ruled that air pollution played a factor in the death of Ella Kissy Deborah, a uh, young girl who was living near a very polluted road. Um, let's talk about that. Uh, what what uh, sort of difficult, different political positions have these respective candidates taken on air pollution? Are any of them going over and above uh, to meet this challenge? Well, um, I think the thing about air pollution is that everybody's against it. And it's a question of how you want to go about it. So I think Sadiq Khan uh, feels that he is well ahead of Sean Bailey on that and that he can uh, reach beyond the Labour constituency, if you like, and attract, if not the first preferences of Greens and Lib Dems, uh, certainly the second preferences, should he need them uh, in the end. So, And I think, um, I think if you're going to look back on what he has done, you could make quite a good case for saying that on environmental policies, particularly relating to transport, those have been some of his bigger achievements, although his critics will shout Silvertown Tunnel immediately. Is it striking that none of the four main political parties, the Conservatives, Labour, Greens or Lib Dems, have put forward a white male candidate for mayor? Um, what do you think this tells us about politics in this city? Um, you know, for example, are the days of powerful white men controlling London coming to an end? Each story of these four main candidates is sort of different. Uh, uh, Sadiq Khan has made a virtue of being uh, uh, an Asian Londoner and in particular uh, a Muslim Londoner. People have rallied to his defence when he's been attacked on that basis. And that certainly tells you something about the city. I don't know whether the Lib Dems particularly went out of their way to ensure they had a, 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 a female candidate. I would say that Louisa Porritt, who's not a very experienced politician, I would say that her performance and presenting her policy has, has become noticeably more accomplished as she's gone on. Uh, Sean Berry is a, a shining star of the Green Party and has been for ages. This is her third uh, attempt to become mayor. She must be the best known Green in the country. She's co-leader of the party nationally. So that sort of explains that. Um, Sean Bailey is in a, in a way the most interesting one. Um, now here he is. He's a black guy, working class, youth worker, background, uh, quite different from your archetypal Tory candidate. And yet he's run an archetypal 
Tory candidate campaign, uh, a very narrow core vote strategy, uh, no really big vision for London, uh, trying to scare up support in outer London about road pricing schemes that will probably never happen. And it's very, very disappointing. You could say that it's uh, encouraging uh, that the Conservative membership in London selected him as their candidate. Uh, I just think he could have done so much more than he has done. And I think it's a real shame that that hasn't happened. You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. Open City friends receive a bunch of perks, including discounts on all Open City events and publications, our audio walking tours of amazing parts of London and friends events at special locations around the city. Visit open-city.org.uk forward slash support for more information. Our second story has been covered in the AJ, on London and across the built environment media. It's all to do with New London Architecture's annual tall building report, which has found there has been no sustained downturn in the development of new towers in London, despite the coronavirus pandemic. Last year saw 72 new buildings of over 20 floors approved, which equates to an annual 11% increase in planning approvals, making 2020 the third year in a row that the number of high-rise buildings approved by councils has increased. The survey also revealed that while the number of completed buildings remained fairly stable, there was however a downturn in the number of new planning applications submitted. A total of 78 planning applications for towers were submitted to councils. That is a 27% drop from the 107 submitted in 2019 and a 36% decrease from what is described as the market peak in 2018. However, the NLA noted that the majority of those applications were submitted in the second half of the year 2020, with the survey suggesting that, quote, developers were happy to push ahead with long-term plans in spite of COVID. A vast majority of these planned towers, 9 out of 10, are residential, not commercial. And as such, much of this development has moved away from the city centre, with more than 80% of these buildings proposed in London's outer boroughs, tying in with Sadiq Khan's plans to increase development of outer London. East London will be home to 261 of these towers, with three boroughs accounting for 75% of these developments. That's Tower Hamlets, Newham and Greenwich. West London will meanwhile receive just 108 of the tall buildings coming through. Writing in Icon, Will Jennings described the report as an act of boosterism for a development sector in the face of countless crises. As a bit of context, NLA is a private company. It's founded by many of the developers and landowners who stand potentially to gain from a booming tall building market. So is it not that surprising they've published a report giving a very positive viewpoint in favour of more tall buildings? Some might say reports like this are in part hype machines intended to shore up speculative investments by boosting market confidence after a very uncertain year. In that context, how seriously should we retake a report like this? Dave, is it a useful way of thinking about the future of London, or is it about reinflating an investment bubble based on till buildings which sadly often struggle to meet our city's true needs? Uh, everybody knows what NLA is. It's a kind of uh, it's a sort of membership organisation for developers and architects and 
people people in that industry and they hold events and so on the annual tall building survey is a bit of a hit for them isn't it because it gets national newspaper coverage uh, people are very interested in uh, tall buildings they have strong feelings about them um, one way or the other and it sort of plays into this London's going to the dogs narrative you know um, and I'm sure that um, uh, you know new London architecture are never going to uh, produce a piece of commentary on their survey saying my god what a bunch of rubbish this is what a terrible idea let's stop it now um, is it good for London or is it not good for London I think in quite a lot of people's minds there is a kind of uh, an irreconcilable opposition between tall glamorous buildings especially housing development buildings uh, that have very, very posh and expensive flats and uh, providing low-cost housing for people on low and middle incomes. You know, the question of height is, it's such a divisive thing and such a subjective thing. I think they are, they are one way, obviously, of uh, increasing density. And there is always going to be an argument for that in a city where housing supply uh, has not, uh, by and large, kept up with housing demand. I mean, with, with all of these approvals at such a high level, um, with with you know, more planning applications going in, is, th- is there a feeling that possibly skyscraper plans are going ahead without much of a rethink on how COVID has changed changed our lives? Some 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 arguments are being made that if you do things in a slightly different way, it can be. Um, uh, including the public realm surrounding buildings, for example. Uh, it can be sort of sensitive and alive to the new normal, whatever that may be. But the whole question of uh, population change in London, which of course is related very much to housing demand, is another of these mysteries. Um, you, how much demand is there going to be? And just a, a quick one. I mean, one of the, the big new prominent towers uh, in the city of London is PLP Architecture's 22 Bishopsgate. It's recently completed. It provides a kind of gleaming image of apparent confidence in the square mile. However, this particular one, it was built on the grave of the half-finished Helter Skelter by KPF. Uh, it was abandoned following the 2008 financial crisis. And many listeners will remember going past and seeing this, this weird abandoned construction site. Um, many of these towers now under construction or planned um they were proposed you know before covid hit um you know, if this report is overly optimistic uh, could we potentially see some you know many more of these developments either abandoned or repurposed redesigned uh you know, slightly put over to other uses in the future well, it depends it depends how flexible they are um uh, i think the city of london corporation has given uh permission for three quite big office developments this year already. From memory, certainly at least one of them talks about um, designing, these are office developments, so designing them for flexibility, for smaller companies, for uh, basically to make them more adaptable to whatever may happen next. 
Our final story relates to a research paper that was published back in 2013, but has recently been recirculating on Twitter, as debates over transport within our cities continue to rage. It's an investigation into people's perspectives of new neighbourhoods based on how they travel. Psychologists from the University of Surrey found that people driving cars form more negative opinions of relatively poor areas than pedestrians do. Um, These observations extend not only to the area as a whole, but also their perceptions of young people in those areas in particular. Uh, The reason for this phenomena is said to be because of the limited information car passengers receive compared to people walking, therefore making them more likely to form superficial judgments. Uh, This potentially results in even more car use in less affluent urban communities due to social perceptions. So Dave, what's this all about? Why do you think this old survey is being recirculated once more? And why is this still such a relevant discussion? Well, the whole debate about uh, the proper use of road space, the proper character of streets, the uh, modes of transport to encourage has come dramatically alive again during the pandemic. The findings of of the study, as you have summarised them, don't surprise me at all. And and it's another argument for um, encouraging less car use and more walking and uh, and and other forms of of transport. You know, which I'm all in favour of. It, it certainly makes me think that um, if this if this study is true, that if you look at say outer London where it sometimes feels like maybe the cultural renaissance of outer London might have been held back because uh, public transport isn't always so strong there so there's a bit more of a reliance on private cars um, I mean, do you, is, could that be something that um, outer London's really suffered from? What a lot of these debates come down to is how do you increase uh, built environment density in outer London? How do you persuade people in low-rise fairly quiet suburban areas, to have more housing. What kind of housing uh, should we encourage in those in, in those areas? And what kinds of transport should go with them? Of course, outer London in general is less well served by public transport than a lot of inner London areas. Um, how do you improve public transport? Uh, uh, a, a, a little theme of this uh, Merrill debate is the... Uh, idea that we should have more um, orbital transport links. There should be more buses that go round and round as opposed to into the middle. That's been going on in, well, certainly in 2008, we had that discussion. Dave, it's been an immense pleasure to have you on the show this week. Um, Where can our listeners uh, find out a bit more about your writing and stay up to speed on all your work? Well, the website that I started uh, in 2017 is called onlondon.co.uk and you'll find stuff by me and a whole bunch of other contributors on there. And On London London is also on Facebook and Twitter. So please follow along. Thanks again for coming on the show and I hope you can join us again soon. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Lundown a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag LundownLNDDWN. 
Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.